Hello and welcome to Glass Onion Minute. Uh, I am Ollie, Ollie Brady. I'm an Irish person who's here hosting for you. And this week we are going to talk about Minute 127. And in order to do this, I am joined again by Alex Gridet. Alex, how are you? Doing well, thank you. Thanks for having me back. Now, should we pretend that we're recording this on a different day, or will we let people have a peek behind the curtain? I nearly said a peek behind the kimono, but that's a disgusting phrase, to be honest with you. So a peek <laughs> behind the curtain to let them know that we're recording this directly after us just finishing recording episode one. Well, I feel like you've just gone and done that. No, no, no. We can still edit it out, Alex. <laughs> uh, I am I'm, I'm fine either way. I will follow your lead on that one. Perfect. Well, in this case, we're recording this directly after where we finished the first episode. So we are right slap bang in the middle of doing this. And this minute comes from two hours and six minutes up until two hours, six minutes and 59 seconds. It is one of the least dialogue heavy minutes in the entire movie. I think the only one that would be better or less dialogue heavy is the next minute, which we'll be talking about on Wednesday's show. But we start with... The explosion's just dying down and an alarm starts to go off and the alarm is telling us This is a smokeless garden. 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 And as this incessant alarm goes off and says it's a non-smoking zone, it's a non-smoking zone, it's a non-smoking zone, Benoit Blanc, who has been caught earlier in the movie smoking his cigar, in the non-smoking zone, gleefully, and it is genuinely a gleeful act, lights up his cigar, takes a smoke, and says, Disruption. Fuck it, <laughs> And sitting beside him is a character, I think his name is Daryl. Daryl. And he says, Fucking A. And that is the end of dialogue in this scene because we cut back to the inside where we see the aftermath of the explosions. We see Miles, he's standing there. He's looking at all of the art in this beautiful room. Sorry, sorry. He's looking at all of the beautiful art in the room that he has made to be disgusting, catching fire and being destroyed by the flames caused by his clear. We then cut to Andy who is on the ground and in slow motion, she starts to get up She's looking at Miles, Miles is looking at her, and then her eyes go to the left. And suddenly we are tracking her eyes as Miles, as he looks to his right, and what we see there is the Mona Lisa enclosed in her protective case, and the flames are building up around the protective case, but Mona Lisa herself is perfectly safe. And we start and we finish, sorry, we start a song, but we finish the minute with some pleasing, dulcet musical tones coming in as Andy, stroke Helen, it's Helen in this case, starts to get up and there's a distinct movement towards the Mona Lisa. And that is where we end our minute. Alex, what did you think about this minute? Well, I think it bridges minutes one twenty six and one twenty eight admirably. Uh, I, I think I think that run of minutes falls apart if it doesn't have this in it. There would be some pretty dreadful continuity errors. Um, no, I, 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 it's a it's a fun minute because there's just been this sort of we're in this zone of like of, of stacking catharses, uh, which we talked about a little bit in the last in the last minute. Um, 
but you know between destroying the all, all of Miles's glass uh, glass sculptures and then starting the fire and then the backdraft inspired clear explosion you know it's this, it's these heightening catharses but Blanc, who has been effectively out of the story of his own movie for a little while now, gets reintroduced, literally just, you know, laid back, smoking a cigar by the fire, uh, you know, as as cozy as anything. Um, I, I, I think it's a great reintroduction. I think it's a great vindication of the um, this is a smokeless garden set up uh, from earlier on. And what's so funny about that alarm that you mentioned, how incessant it is, is it's not, it's not a notification to the person who's smoking. It is a name and shame to anyone who might be near someone. Like, it's such a, like, it's a, it's an, it's a, it's a dick move having a smokeless outdoor space on a private island anyway. But if you want it that way, have it that way. Like, that's, that's conscionable. But, you know, a tasteful sign, a no smoking sign would get the job done. But of course, Miles has to go in for the technological thing that is also the douchebag thing. Um, and uh, I love that that gets set off by the explosion. Uh, and by that point, uh, Blanc is beyond being named or shamed. Uh, the damage is done. He's going to smoke his cigar and Daryl is going gonna, is gonna to light a blunt. And... Um, I, I I spoke a little bit about Blanc being uh, lawful good slash chaotic good in the last minute, which is weird that I'm invoking that because I don't I'm not a tabletop gamer at all. But uh, <laughs> are but, you sure? Because this is two mentions of it in two episodes. Well, only because I started pulling at the thread in my notes for 126, and I realized in 127. I mean, Daryl is true chaotic neutral, and I I I love that about him. I was first of all like. I was, let me backtrack a little bit. In the run-up to uh, to Glass Onion, I really saluted the notion of not bringing back any continuity characters from, yeah. uh, of out. not creating a character continuity from Knives Out. That is that is very true to Poirot novels, to, you know, that there's just, that, that you follow the detective and everything else is different. And then I was excited to hear that Noah Segan was returning and Noah Segan has, is, is I think childhood friends with Ryan Johnson, uh, or at least they've been friends for a very, very long time. Uh, he's been in every single, uh, Ryan Johnson movie, uh, pretty memorably in Looper as Kid Blue as Trooper Wagner in Knives Out. He has a much smaller part, uh, part in Last Jedi, but if you're a fan of Ryan Johnson and Noah Segan working together, he's unmistakable in his in his hero moment getting to pound the um pound the windscreen on his X-wing. Um uh, moments before exploding, but still. So I was delighted when I heard Noah Segan was coming back and I thought well, that's going to be a bit of an odd thing to try and work Trooper Wagner into a story set, as far as I can tell, on the other side of the planet. And I love they didn't even bother. That it's this is <laughs> a whole new character that is never given any pretext for being there apart from he's working some stuff out, going through a rough time. And all we see is he basically Big Lebowski's around the island uh, in, in comfortable resort where smoking weed. And I'm just like... I, I love that he's in the mix for this, that he is a couple of just absolute laser-guided punchlines, and that's all he has to do. But it's like, 
it's the middle of a pandemic. They're going to go throw the, you know, make this movie on an island in, in, in Greece. And I love that Ryan Johnson was like, we're going to bring my best friend along. Uh, and he's just going to be a stoner who's just hanging out. What I liked about that character is um, he really represents what I think is the treaties of Benoit Blanc in this movie is the glass onion appears to be really complicated and the mystery appears to be really complicated. And when I was first watching this and you see Daryl and Daryl walks onto the beach, Daryl, Daryl, I, I, I think it's written down as Daryl, but I, like, yeah, everyone but everyone sort of says it. Daryl, like the, Darryl, the, the, the boy robot from the, the boy robot. I'm delighted I was just about to make that reference. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody ever seems to remember this movie, but that kid was really good at baseball because he was a robot, right? Yep. Surely that's against the rules. People always go, it's not against the rules to have Air Bud play basketball. It should be against the rules that we had to have a robot kid playing or baseball, right? But apart from Daryl, uh, he comes onto the beach and he just goes, walks past and I think you're meant to say, think to yourselves, oh, this guy's in on it. This guy's part of the mystery. This guy's, he's not. He's just a dude. He's just a dude wandering around and he's having a good time and nobody knows why he's there and he's just happy and he's just chill and he's relaxed. And I think that's a beautiful, beautiful bit of filmmaking is we are going to visually represent that sometimes complicated things are just you making them more complicated in your own head. Yeah, and that's what Miles has been doing all the time. He is so wrapped up in the idea that he is smarter than everyone else, and he's going to prove how smart he is, and he's going to do all of these little smart things. And the reality is that all he's doing is overcomplicating a simple process. And even the box that he sends out at the beginning, you notice how all of the other um, disruptors, they all have difficulty opening the box they have to work together as a team but somebody who is more intelligent than the rest of them Benoit Blanc he opens it on his own in about five minutes mm-hmm. and he doesn't even understand or he wouldn't even get the references to some of the clues well or so we're led to believe but in reality what's happened is is that Helen has shown up with the shards of what she's smashed open but yes. I love that I love that Blanc solves this elaborate Gillian Flynn penned murder mystery that they're there for the whole weekend. In five seconds. In, in seconds. It's wonderful. Um, I, I love that while we're on the subject of Daryl, and I'm sure you've covered this in his previous, previous minutes, because even though he's a small presence in this movie, he's one well worth discussing. I love the, when Helen is, running around ransacking everybody's rooms to try and find the red envelope that all of these rooms are, are modernist and, you know, you know, they, they fit the architecture and design of this completely overdeveloped, you know, over-designed palace of Miles's. Um, they fit it to a T, but that there's this custom made like wood paneled, uh, like finished basement for Daryl to hang out in, um, because that's sort of his per like the same way Miles has gone to this ludicrous trouble to to assign people different villas based on their based on chakras and stuff like that. He's also created this this curated experience for his guest who's going through I don't know a divorce or who knows what mm-hmm. by making a wood paneled nineteen eighties basement for him to smoke weed in and I just I I I love that that sight gag gets me every time 
uh, especially the way that Andy just kind of, or that Helen just kind of backs away from it because this place is just getting weirder and weirder. I also love that, like, Daryl's reaction to the glass onion exploding in flame is not one of loyalty to his buddy who's putting him up for the weekend. It's just a cool thing to watch. Big so, dumb glass thing exploded. There's no, you know, it, it sets a, it actually shows that Daryl has a bit more of either more of a conscience than the disruptors or less of a clear understanding of what's going on in that they would, this whole movie is about getting them to relinquish their meal ticket uh, that Miles Brown represents for them. And Daryl's free ride is obviously coming to an end too. And either he doesn't get it or he does and he doesn't care. Yeah, and that's the thing about it is you don't know what Daryl, but at the end of the day, he's just a relaxed, he's just the stoner that he appears to be. He's honestly, he is the only person treating uh, a Greek island the way it should be treated in the whole movie. Exactly. Greek islands should be treated in one of three ways. Number one, you should be hopping between the islands playing the mandolin. Number two, you should be setting up your own little hotel there and having the love child of one of three men. And you're not (laughs) sure which one. And maybe in about 18 or 19 years, which is very young to be getting married, by the way, but about 18 or 19 years, yeah. later, she might want to track down which one of those are dads. And then, you know, hilarity ensues. Also, Pierce Brosnan sings. Um, or you should be doing what Daryl is doing, which is Absolutely. getting blazed I- and sitting down in a wood paneled basement in a luxury mansion and just having a great time. I mean, why on earth not? And and who amongst us wouldn't? Um I, uh, no, I, I, I just sidebar, but for the record, if your second example had been anything but a Mamma Mia reference, I had it in the chamber to go, you know, there's a fourth thing that you can do in Greek islands. I was going, Captain Corelli, uh, Mamma Mia, those, those are the only two acceptable Greek movies. Uh, also my big fat Greek wedding, uh, but that's not actually on Greece. They, yeah, they, well. Yeah, I don't see I think it. the They're new one is. I think, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, what did you think about the uh, visual? Well, I, I, just before I go into this, I love the fact that the two lines of dialogue are one word by Benoit and two words, or a word and a letter by Daryl, and that everything after this point is just facial expressions between yeah uh, Helen and Miles, and it's the look of horror that goes on the Miles' face as soon as he realizes what Helen is looking at. Yeah. The, just, the, well, chef's kiss. It plays out much more in minute 128, so we'll talk about it then. Uh, I do want to say before we get off the dialogue section, the the, the lengthy dialogue section of this minute, <laughs> I, I love that um, there's been this whole thing, you know, uh, the whole movie, this group of people called the Disruptors, um, uh, and Miles with his whole disruption theory that he lays out, which Blanc then later discredits as being rudimentary. But to Blanc's great satisfaction, something that isn't just finding a different way to sell sweatpants or uh, or to package a technology company, something genuinely dis- destructive is the first disruptive thing he's seen. Uh, you know, to his own definition of it, which I think is very, very effective. Uh, And then, yes, when we go back inside, something I noticed actually when I watched this time 
that I hadn't necessarily picked up on before. But when, after you have this moment in the smokeless garden, you cut back in to, uh, into, into the, the, the gallery and everything is, everything is burning or hanging askew and everything. Uh, and you really do get a second to take in all this artwork that is on fire. Uh, but it's all background. It's a, it's a wide shot. So you're seeing the far walls of the gallery mm-hmm. and then the, the, the baby blue collapses. Oh, I love it. In from the nosedives in from the roof, but that's right in the foreground. And that, that, that's, we talked in the last episode about how to, to miles, this art collection, which Claire has, has described as basically being the Tate modern, uh, but how to Miles, it's just it's just stuff. It's just things, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's it's he knows what to collect because he knows how to Google stuff and he has the money to get it. But he doesn't he's not moved by the artwork. He's not he's not moved by any of the artwork except the Mona Lisa, which we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, but the thing that really hurts him is his his custom Porsche that makes no sense to have on that island because there are no roads, so you can't drive it anywhere, but he's got to have it with him, so he's got to have it on the roof. And that getting that getting pancaked is what gets his attention. And that's just a, just a really brilliant bit of, of, of visual storytelling, how, um, how Ryan Johnson and Steve Yedlin chose to tell this story of the aftermath of the explosion. The... Funny thing about this is, and I don't want to be a nitpicker, but I'm going to nitpick a tiny little bit here, is the baby blue falling through the roof and hitting the ground and then falling over is legitimately one of the most atrocious pieces of CGI I've ever seen in my life. It's not great. I I think it might have been intentional because I, like, and I, 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 such a silly notion that he had the car up there in the first place and it's so funny that that's what falls down and that's when his face changes he's like he, he doesn't look upset really at all of the as you said at all of the other paintwork they're going exploding he just looks at kind of vaguely annoyed um, but he's still standing and the car falling in and falling over and it's completely totaled really just shows his face like he's, he's like oh oh no oh yeah no, it's blue. it's it's a it's a wonderful turn of events watching these things, uh, this cascade of impact that um, just escalates into the the tail end of this minute where where Helen picks herself up and sets her sights on her real target and Miles is able to figure out what that is. I I I I, I do like that he is. He is an idiot. It has been it has been thoroughly documented and established. It's the core tenet of the movie. But I like that he's not he's not a moron. He's not like completely without comprehension. So it's like yes, he's heartbroken by the baby blue getting destroyed, but he sees that Helen is still a threat and he gets on that wavelength and figures out her next move. So I, I like that balance. I don't think it's contradictory. I think it's actually just a really good layering of the character because I think there are, particularly in his position and at at his level of wealth, these very uh, these very calculating, very dumb people. Well, that's it. 
that's what myself and Adil talked about it on um on the the week that we were talking about because the week that we did before was um I think it was minute seventy five to seventy nine, and that's where they're getting the flashbacks to Andy with the disruptors at the beginning, and I I don't think Miles is stupid. I don't think he's stupid at all. I don't think he's as clever as he thinks he is, and I don't no. think he's as clever as you would expect somebody who's the CEO of a. Uh, one of the biggest companies in the world, or I think it's implied is the biggest company in the world. Although, you know, we all know of at least one incredibly famous person who's not particularly bright at the minute. But um, with Miles, his skill is cunning. Like, his intelligence is, like, almost like his lizard brain takes over. And he knows a threat. He knows a beneficial thing when he sees it, which is why he snaps on to other people's skills and he snaps on to Andy and he's like, oh, you've you've got an idea there, Andy. What are you working on? Something good, I bet. And he can tell that while playing pool and having a conversation with two other people. And he was able to figure out that she had something good for herself from her body language. And he's able to read Andy in the same way. So he might not have the book smarts. He might not have the, uh, the same smarts that, say, for example, Lionel has in terms of science. And right. he might not have the business savvy that Andy had. But what he does have is the ability to read the room and to read what's going on. So I think it's a real indication that he still has that. No matter how much is going on, no matter how much destruction is around him, he still has that core skill set, which is I can now spot that Andy is looking at something and I looked yeah. over and he straight away gets her intention. Like I watching it the first time, even watching it again today for maybe the fifth or sixth time that I've seen it. When she looks up, I don't think there's any indication that she's going to go running towards the, when right. we talk about it in the next scene. Mm-hmm. But he knows before she does. And if you watch it, he is moving before she is up. Yeah. That's how quickly he is able to react and assess, the, and in this case, the danger, right? And that's what I'm saying. I think he... He might not have the um, the learned PhD level intelligence that we're expecting from people uh, in those types of positions, but he's very clever and very good at getting what he wants and assessing what he needs. So yeah, I think I think it's a very good scene for him, and I, I don't think it's yeah. inconsistent at all. I think it's it's very much in character. Yeah, I, I this this minute and definitely the next one, the next two, I think after this. Uh, which are undialogued minutes for the most part, or at least the next one definitely is. Um, but Edward Norton is is a very gifted actor. I you know there there are other things about uh, other other traits of his I'm not necessarily so wild about. But when you give him good material, he can he can definitely you know he can he can swing for the fences and. As much fun as he's able to have with language and line delivery and stuff like that, this minute and the next really show you how expressive his face and his body language are. Uh, he's a he's a very good physical actor, um, particularly as uh, more in the next minute than this one when it comes to comedy because he does some really broad stuff, which we'll talk about next time. That uh, is really impressive. So it's kind of. He's sort of in the say what you will about him camp for me, but um, but say what you will about him, like he nails it on this one. Yeah, he's not um, 
he's not an actor I particularly like, but I, I was listening to Blank Check, which is another podcast. Sorry, Darren, for name dropping another podcast. Um, it's a fantastic podcast, so I highly recommend it to everybody. And Blank Check have been doing the Fincher novel or movies um, recently, hence why I was so uh, set on going to see The Killer last week. Um, and while they were talking about it, obviously because Edward Norton is in Fight Club, they talked, did a little retrospective on Edward Norton's career. And what they came to the conclusion was that he's an incredible actor when he's got a very strong director that will hold him. Yeah. Stop him from doing whatever he wants. When he's in a movie involving any director who can't keep a handle on him and keep him contained or who lets him try and run the show from where he is, he his performances are shocking. Yeah, I think I think he's like he's a bit like like Someone with the, uh, like, like a, a school kid with the potential to be a really good student when they have the right teacher. Like, they thrive off of that kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. But if they don't have that, yeah, they're just gonna, they're gonna disrupt the class and, you know, be, be the class clown and everything. Uh, so I, but I think it's exciting not, cause it's not like when he's working with a good director that he's somehow like whipped or penitent or anything. He's not, he's not a puppy dog. Uh, <laughs> but it's a, it's, it's a different kind of coming alive, you know, uh, and one that can be really thrilling to watch. I think in terms of actors who could have played Miles Braun, I mean, I think he kind of is the list, um, because He's handsome, but he's not movie star handsome, and he's charismatic, but also a little bit there. There, but capable of being a little bit toxic. He's he can be funny, he can be scary, he can be smart, he can be stupid. Like he he runs he runs a lot of gamuts, and I think found a lot of fun angles on this character. I just when you say that about there's very few actors who could do it. I was thinking about um, Tom Cruise in particular. I was thinking about him in Vanilla Sky. And the character he plays in Vanilla Sky of the guy who thinks he's all there, the guy who thinks he's the shit hottest guy in the room and who also happens to look like Tom Cruise, right? That works in Vanilla Sky because of what happens to him. And, right, and I and even though Tom Cruise is my favorite movie star, he's not the best actor who's ever lived or anything. Like that, no, but, but he's a he's a splendid movie movies, star. Yeah, right. And uh, he would not have worked in this movie because no, well, he just you, at no point can you not take him as serious. It's like you can't have him have low status in almost any scene anymore because he's too big. Yeah, it's it's and also it's because it's there's. You know, uh, Edward Norton doesn't wink when he plays this character. You know, it's not like he's... He doesn't have that... He doesn't have, like, a need for the audience to to connect with him. So he's just, like, you know, uh, playing it so that, so that we get that it's like, no, it, it, he's not really this bad a guy. He's just playing a bad guy. Like, he's he really immerses himself in it, and I think that's great. But there is a sense that from the way he plays this character that it's like... This is not Edward Norton playing to the height of his ability, to the height of his intelligence, to the height of his intensity. He's brought those to other projects where they would have made more sense. Here he found the levels for this character perfectly. Tom Cruise, I don't think... I don't think Tom Cruise would be willing to be that kind of 
bad guy, basically. Because no, I, I, I also think the, the elements that make Tom Cruise a good, charismatic movie star are the exact same elements that make Miles Braun uh, a, a toxic, uh, idiotic CEO. It's, it's, um, it's kind of funny the way these things applied to different, uh, different enterprises have totally different results. Yeah, and it, it comes down to, as I was saying, the thing about somebody like Cruise, a persona like Cruise, is... Like, if you take um, a movie from the same year this came out, Top Gun Maverick, right? So, obviously, Maverick is the, the best pilot who's ever lived and the greatest human being who's ever lived. And there are three scenes in that movie where he is meant to be at the lower end of what's happening in the room. There's one where he gets thrown out of the bar. And yet, it's so heavily implied that he allowed that to happen. Yeah. If he'd have wanted to, he could have fought off all of those young uh, recruits. <laughs> he would have beaten them up, but he was playing along with the game because he wanted to sleep with Jennifer Connelly. And he lets himself get thrown out. Then when, uh, later on, he's getting a dressing down from, um, uh, what do you call him's uh, character? Um, John Hamm's character. Because he went below the hard deck. Yep. And he's getting that dressing down, the same dressing down he got in the first movie. But this time, oh, by the way, here's a request I put in. Uh, yeah. And we've already agreed to it. So they can't even let him down. And then at the end, he not well, not at the end of the movie, but the, the last uh, in uh, training scene, he's getting another dressing down. And they have to end, like they even have to get a joke in there. He's like, well, I, am I going to fire you or, or let you do the mission? And like Tom Cruise is like, Oh, let me do the mission. And yeah. you have John Hamm going, it's a, it's a rhetorical question. <laughs> and, but you get to have that funny sort of breaks attention because obviously, no matter what happens, Maverick is Maverick. Mm-hmm. And and it's not just that it's Maverick the character, it's, it's the Tom Cruise effect. Mm-hmm. And there's no other actor, as you said, who has that right level of, I can actually picture him on the shitty end of the stick. And I can see him at the top end of the stick, but I can also see him on the shitty end of the stick. Uh, sorry for saying S H one T-T-Y. But yeah, so yeah, I think he's just perfect for the role. And as you mentioned in the last episode that we recorded, having the ability to cast an ensemble like this, but then have your three major players be Benoit Blanc, coming over from the last movie, and now you've got... Um, uh, Helen and Andy and you've got Miles and they're both being performed by uh, an actor and an actress who are fantastic at playing both sides of the role it's just it's it's brilliant it's brilliant casting the entire way through yeah absolutely and uh, it's well actually I'll I'll save my thoughts on the ensemble for uh, a couple of scenes down because this this is not a, a particularly strong ensemble scene but it is an amazingly strong ensemble in this movie and I have some thoughts about that that we'll get into. Uh and you mentioned uh the 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 uh the the song that comes in at the end of the uh at, at the tail end of the scene which i can't recall if the vocals start in this minute or not uh no they don't start until 
halfway through the next minute. Oh, well, let's let it be a little bit of a surprise then um, as to what the song actually is. I'll move that note to the next episode. And is there anything else you want to talk about in this particular minute? Uh, no, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a transitional minute. Uh, like I said, it brings, it brings Blanc back into the story, uh, even acknowledging that he does not contribute to the story at this point anymore, really, uh, for the rest of the movie. Like, his, his work is done. He's, he's kicked back and having a smoke with Daryl. Uh, and by the way, like, Benoit Blanc and Daryl, that's that's a dream blunt rotation, but so <laughs> so is Noah Segan and Daniel Craig. Like Yeah, that's true. I mean that's that's a twofer right there. And if Richard Weiss comes along just to hang out with us too, I would be <laughs> more than happy to enjoy this. So there's no specific question on a Tuesday. Uh, but I have a question for you, Alice, because you mentioned Poirot, and obviously Benoit Blanc is an homage to Poirot and I was wondering what are your experiences with Poirot in general like have you like have you watched anything beyond the Kenneth Branagh movies have you even seen the Kenneth Branagh movies I have I have seen the Kenneth Branagh movies uh I don't care for them um that's important to note I think these movies are meant to I, I think these stories are meant to be uh delightful sort of brain teasery um they are definitely there's a fun paradox to Agatha Christie which is that murder is central to all of them but the atmosphere stays like a cocktail party which mm-hmm. is why a hundred years after she was writing we're still talking about Agatha Christie and and why she is a genre unto herself uh I think Kenneth Branagh does not enjoy that side of them I find his movies to be very heavy, very portentous. I find his Poirot to be very glum. Uh, the most recent one, Haunting in Venice, I I was... Uh, if we're going to rank these things, we don't have to, but it was definitely a step up from Death on the Nile, only because Death on the Nile was really terrible, I thought. Um, but Haunting in Venice, the whole movie centers on... Uh, mild spoilers perhaps but Poirot Poirot has lost his taste for this sort of thing so he very grudgingly goes uh along with an american novelist um to uh to uh into a scenario that turns into a murder that he investigates and in doing so gets his mojo back but we really only see him with his mojo back in the last minute and a half of the movie and you have to spend that I don't know, two hours leading up to that with him just being like, all right, everybody, here's what happened. And it's like, no, that's <laughs> not, that's not, like, one of my, whenever the question comes up uh, in in any social forum, favorite movie tropes, mine is the detective gathers everyone in the accusatorium to tell us what we've just been watching. Every time a movie does that, I... Uh, like I am like I'm like a kid seeing his first fireworks display. I'm li- like he makes uh, Ryan Johnson makes such a meal out of these that like literally Blanc in Knives Out takes off his jacket, tucks in his tie, rolls up his sleeves like it's showtime. Uh, the my other favorite one is 
Tim Curry include? Just explaining the entire movie uh, at high speed on foot is is wonderful to watch. It's 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 telling you what you already knew, and it's thrilling. And when Kenneth Branagh does it, it's a slog, and I don't enjoy that about it. Um, I did have experience with Poirot prior to uh, Poirot prior to that <laughs> uh, in the form of Peter Ustinov. Uh, and Albert Finney in the, um, I guess there's four of them all together, uh, spanning the early seventies to late eighties. I think it was, it was Albert Finney and murder on the Orient Express, which is wonderful. Uh, just absolute all-star cast, uh, and everything, uh, Sidney Lumet directing, everything is very arch and very stylized and Poirot himself is just one of this rogues gallery of weirdos. Um, Albert Finney plays it very uncomfortably and with an uncomfortable intensity, I find. Uh, I still love the movie, though. But then Peter Ustinov steps in in Death on the Nile, Evil Under the Sun, and Appointment with Death. Appointment with Death isn't very good, but that was because Canon Films had acquired the rights by then, and it is every inch the Canon movie. Yeah. But, uh... It's, uh, it's got... If, you, if the name Canon rings a bell as soon as you hear it, it is every trope you would expect from a canon movie yeah it's and don't get me wrong i love most canon movies but but it was this was them making a bid for class and they just don't have the chops for that but versus uh death the 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 ustinov death on the nile uh and his evil under the sun which is pretty explicitly referenced in this too the um the hourly dong in glass onion is a reference to the noonday gun in um which is a cannon that goes off at noon every day in evil under the sun and helps determine the time of a murder um and uh peter ustinov had the had the the right attitude for the role just a real delight uh a real you know he, he um found he was he was periodic he was he found sympathy for uh to he found ways to play sympathy for for people who've lost someone they care about he found he found a real kind of granite hardness when he's dealing with disreputable people but for the most part he he delivers every line almost like he's being tickled uh off screen and it's they're just absolutely super fun movies um uh with these wonderful 1970s early 80s ensemble players uh so you get uh, Michael York and Simon McCorkendale and Olivia Hussey and uh, Maggie Smith and Diana Rigg. Maggie Smith shows up in a couple of them as a couple of different characters, so she's kind of the Daryl of that series. Um, and uh, yeah, they're just they're fun as hell. I I never really I didn't love Poirot enough to follow him to like like BBC Mysteries. So like the David Suchet ones, I'm not really familiar with, even though I hear they're very good. I, um, I grew up with those particular ones because um, they were coming out in the mid to late 80s and early 90s. And even, I think ITV even took them over and brought David Suchet back. And um, so, like, them, those, like the sharp TV show with Sean Bean, were interchangeable specials, you know, every few months on either BBC or ITV. And I have to say, both of those series are wonderful like they're they're exactly what you would expect it's well like, i will i will pop those on a list next um 
Uh, and I, I, I really love that that Benoit Blanc is in the fashion of Hercule Poirot, of Miss Marple, uh, but not... It's not... Uh, it's not a one for one thing like like Benoit Blanc I think is his own creation. He has his own moral compass, he has his own likes and dislikes, his strengths, his weaknesses, but it's not like Ryan Johnson sat down and said, "Well, Poirot famously has a mustache, so I'm going to give my guy a beard." You know, it it it, it wasn't that sort of one to one thing where it's like people aren't going to people aren't going to believe that this James Bond uh inspired characters James Bond inspired unless we put him in a tuxedo and make a joke about how he's like James Bond it's like this this doesn't do that this is just in the tradition of and I love it for that yeah and also just to point out that uh, he is still massive in this movie like this the scenes that I talked about with Adil before are set at night time and he's backlit a lot and he has shoulders that bodybuilders would kill to have. Oh, yeah, and yeah. And the movie goes out of its way to try and hide them, but there is no hiding that chest. Like, no, he, is, he is in incredible shape. It's, um, it's, it's really funny, too, especially because, like, in, in, in Knives Out, which, uh, you know, which was, which was in the middle of his, his run as Bond, you know his his eyes are kind of watery. His skin is kind of ashen. Like he looks he look he looks a little hungover the whole time. Mm-hmm. He has a real whiskey drunk vibe He's about a, a him. A burned out kind of vibe. Yeah, which I love. But it's like, but there's no mistaking the way clothing fits this man and the way he carries himself. And he can do what he wants to hide it, but like he's still he's still walking out of the he's still walking out of the surf in the the blue bathing suit. And we all know it. Exactly. Um, um so thanks a million again for coming on Alex and I'll be saying this to you three more times. Uh do you have any plugs? Uh, yes, I briefly touched on last time uh, a mixtape blog I have at steelapesessions.com. The Steel Ape Sessions is a project I've been doing for coming up on 10 years now, where using Spotify, I make a new mixtape every month. They are playlists, but uh, I call them mixtapes because I'm from the 90s. Um, <laughs> and uh, and they have some shape to them, like there's curation involved, and it's a, it's it's meant to be an arc. Uh, so I've been doing this, uh, we, we, um, uh, spoke a bit before about Vanilla Sky. I was inspired because I'd heard that was a thing Cameron Crowe does is he makes a mixtape every month. Uh, I don't know if he still does, but certainly there was a time in his life where I read that that was the case. And I thought, you know, the technology has come along to the point where it's not the labor of making a tape or CD the way it would have been when I was coming up. So let's see how long I can keep up with this. And it turns out almost a decade. Uh, oh, wow. So there are currently 135 uh, mixes available at uh, or linked out from um, from Spotify over at steelapesessions.com. You can follow me on Instagram at steelapesessions.com, where, or just steelapesessions on Instagram, actually, where, I, uh, where you can find me posting about new mixes or about music that I'm enjoying uh at the time of posting stuff like that. So if you want to know what I think about music, um, uh, Steel Ape is a great place to start. Fantastic. Uh, I just, on a complete random aside point, although it is linked to music, uh, I once was in a long phone conversation with somebody where we were chatting about our musical tastes. Um, 
think 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 when you're starting to get to know somebody uh, that you might be interested in uh, you know as a future relationship so you you know you give your your deepest musical picks and uh and i was told that the best way to describe my music which i always thought would be the word eclectic uh but it turns out that the best way to describe my music is you sure listen to a lot of sad white boys singing sad stuff ollie <laughs> And uh, and I have to say, <laughs> pretty much nailed it. I do like to listen to sad white boys playing pianos. So um, hopefully, there's some of that on the steel tape mixes. If if Tom York's shoe fits. Oh well, I absolutely love Radiohead, so it a hundred percent does. Uh, the show. Um, oh, sorry. Do you have any social media that you can reach? Uh, just again, uh, Steel Ape Sessions, uh, and as I mentioned last time, Giant Giant Apparel. Uh, I'll throw another one on the pile next time. Perfect. And uh, you can reach the show on uh, Twitter at, or you know, X if you want to call it that, at Glass Onion Minute or Glass Onion Min, and it's all one word. You can reach us on Instagram at Benoit Blanc Minute, all one word. And if you want to, and if you have it, you can get us on Treads.net slash at Benoit Minute or Benoit Blanc Minute in fact um, people who are listening if you could rate and review us or subscribe to us you could do it in the podcaster of your choice and you can put the review in the podcaster of your choice and it will be aggregated and brought to us um, again Alex this is the second time this week and it'll be one of five in total but thank you so much for coming on thanks for having me and we'll see you guys tomorrow